The scripture reading for today comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. For those that were at the service last week at Central Christian, we know this is quite, quite different to come back to, to, to normal, but that was a, a good celebration to be a part of. But this last month of September, we were in, in recovery month, so we were looking at that. And so now we're back here uh, at Crown Hill, and we're going to start a new series that's going to take us up through Advent. And as um, Caitlin read from First John, we're going to be studying the books of First, Second, and Third John. Uh, and so that should take us up through uh, Advent, which starts in December. Uh, but we'll see. If, it, if we still have more of the Johns to study after Advent, then we'll jump into it in the new year. But for this, this week, uh, we're, we're looking at these, the first introductory verses that, that Caitlin read for us. And I don't, I don't know if any of you guys have seen some of the things on the Internet about kind of the awkward church signs or things that get put on church signs or bulletins that, that really are inappropriate. Have you guys take, read any of those? They're, they're pretty funny. And so I, as I was putting together the weekly email to send out to you, I caught it, but I almost, I almost made one myself because I was thinking of a, a clever title for this series on, on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so I thought, well, I can just cover the, we can do the overall series and call it Hanging Out in the Johns. <laughs> yeah. And then I saw that title, I'm like, whoa, let's not go with that sermon title. So uh, maybe we'll come up with a clever title for the overall series, but it won't be that one. Um, so let's that, jump in and look at the introduction to 1 John. And one of the reasons that I chose for the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is, one, they're all pretty short books, and we only have about six weeks between now and Advent. That, that's right. That's only about six weeks until, or seven weeks until December gets here. It kind of seems pretty fast. So it's, they're shorter books, so we can maybe get that done in that period of time. But also, I don't really know a lot about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They're kind of nestled in the back of the Bible. They're pretty short, uh, and so there's a couple of very quotable verses in there about forgiveness, you know, like the assurance of forgiveness verses in there. There's some quotable verses about how much we're supposed to love each other, uh, but really, like the whole, like overall, like what are those letters about? I couldn't have really explained them to you, and so I uh, just figured let's spend some time. Let's look at the at first, second, and third John. So the first four verses that we're looking at this morning is an introduction. The, the author of the book is introducing his topic, what he's, what he's writing to, uh, to the, the churches that he's writing. He said, this is what it's going to be about. And so I want to just reread what Caitlin just read to you, and, and then we'll look at some of the, the language that the author is using. This which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at with our hands, and, and our hands have touched. So you see the, the sermon title that we actually did use there, heard, seen, and touched, those, those, those words that comes right from verse 1 there. This we proclaim considering the word of life. 
The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was, for, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard, again, those words are repeated, so that you may have fellowship with us in our fellowship with the Father and, the Son, and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this so our joy is complete. So this language is important. We look at this and we see, okay, so the, the author here, John, is, is repeating number of words various times. So the first thing that's, that can stand out, uh, maybe it doesn't the first thing that stands out to everyone, but when you read this, the sensory language stands out, right? We, we have three of the five senses that the author is saying we, we've seen with our eyes. And he's, he's talking about Jesus here. We've seen him with our eyes. We've beheld him. We've, we've touched him. We were there. We, we walked with him for three years while he was here on earth. And we touched him with our hands. We ate around the table with him. We, this, he, was, he was real. And we heard what he said, he, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, all the different teachings, the parables, the interaction he had with the disciples. He said, we were there. We heard these things. And so he's appealing to the, the, the three of the five senses to say, this is real. Um, and so he's, he's letting people know about that. We also see the life repeated a couple times. He talks about the eternal life that which, which was from the Father. He talks about the life that we can have in Christ. We see the word fellowship repeated. That's something that Caitlin picked up on in the, uh, the opening when she talked about our, you know, as Christians we have this fellowship and we're always longing for this deeper connection. And that, you know, he repeats that word about having fellowship. And then also we see the language of proclamation. I proclaim this to you. Proclaim is repeated three different times and then testify, which is basically a synonym to proclaim, is in there four times. So we see John is really nailing down on this language. So what is it he's wanting us to learn from this? Why is, he, why is he emphasizing these things? What is John introducing us to, right? This is an introduction. So if you've been through you know, college or high school English, you've probably been taught in your introduction, you need to tell your people what you're going to be talking about. Does that bring back any bad memories for, for people? Or maybe you maybe enjoyed English class. It's an introduction. So what's it pointing us to? And so for, before we jump into that, we actually need to take a step backwards and look at the overall context of this letter. So this, was letter, this letter was written to a group, to a community of followers. It was going through a pretty difficult time. And why was this written? What was the point of this letter? And the point of the letter is, is because of some of the issues that were happening, it was happening over theological disputes. So we're, we're going to get a little bit academic here. Um, I know whenever you kind of get into the ancient... Um, you know, ways of thought, you know, some people that love history love this part, and some people that, that aren't as much into this kind of zone out, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep kind of the history lecture here short. But it's important that we, we have some sort of a, a grasp of the context, if we really want to understand what First John is talking about, we need to understand what the early church was going through. So I want to talk about two uh, heresies. Uh, that were prevalent at the time. So heresy is, is a, a, a way of thinking or a way of understanding God that, that was heretical, which was not the, the correct understanding according to the church at the time or according to us now. So it was, it was a way of thinking about Jesus or a way of thinking about um, the, the Christian message uh, that was not on point. And so the first heresy that was, that was going around at the time, and we can see that the people in First John were having to deal with, is known as docetism. All right, so docetism is a, a word that comes from the Greek, and it means to seem. All right? So it's a heresy about something about seeming or appearing. So the, basically, the, the docetic heresy was 
that the people, they, they said, Jesus wasn't really here in the flesh. Right, so they were saying, Jesus appeared to come as human. He seemed, so that's the root word, docetism, to seem. He seemed to be here on earth. He seemed as a human. He, all these appearances and things that looked like to our eyes that it was a real human being that was walking around that, that, that had this miraculous power, but it was really a grand illusion. It only seemed that way. So when he went on the cross and died, it only looked like a death happened. And the resurrection, the same thing. It was all appearances. And the reason this, this, this heresy cropped up is because of that, the people ha- having trouble reconciling that how could God, who is all-powerful, who created the world from nothing, who is, who is, who is all uh, the creator, all-powerful, all-loving, how could this God enter into human form? How could, it enter, how could this God enter into flesh and become um, uh, able to be you know, evil? You know, flesh could have been could make wrong choices. How could this guy even be faced with the choice of doing right or wrong? So people couldn't reconcile that with like with their vision of God, and so they said well, it must have been all an appearance. It's just a, a grand illusion, a miracle that God did before us to appear as human, but He wasn't really. And so that was the Docetic heresy. Just think, Docetic means to seem. So it seemed like God was here, but He wasn't really. And then the other prevalent uh, heretical thought at the time was known as Gnosticism. Uh, I I know we've talked about this at least once or twice other before, but again, uh, it's it's an ancient philosophical way of thinking uh, that that Gnosticism was based in in Greek thought of a dualism. So again, if you studied the humanities in in high school or college and you were forced to read Plato and things like that, um, so that a lot of Gnostic thought is rooted in Plato. And that idea that that there's this separation between the spiritual and the physical, the the separation between heaven and earth, the separation between the flesh and that which was immortal. And so the Gnostic thought said that everything that was spiritual, everything that was above, everything in heaven is good and perfect. But that means everything on earth is evil and fallen and broken. And, and so that dualism at its core basically said that, that all flesh is bad. All, all physical things are bad. The things of this earth are all, all there's nothing good in it. it it's all evil. And all the goodness and the eternal is, is, is spiritual and separate from us. So the Gnosticism is basically this duality. There's two different things and we, as humans, are part of the physical world and flesh, and, and, and we are evil. And so, with that Gnostic way of thinking, basically saying, well, Jesus couldn't have been divine. It was impossible for God to take on flesh because, God, because, because flesh is evil. And so, the, the incarnation that, that Jesus could have become a human being is impossible. And so they say that, this, that Jesus just wasn't divine. He, he could have been uh, a prophet or he could have been a, a great teacher and all these different things, but no God would take on flesh and definitely wouldn't, wouldn't die on a cross. And so for, for Gnostic ways of thinking, salvation doesn't come from Jesus. Salvation doesn't come uh, from, from his work on the cross or resurrection. Salvation actually comes from knowledge. The more knowledge that you can gain, of the spiritual realm. So if you more, the more knowledge you learn, uh, the more you learn about the different ways that the spiritual world functions. And if you gain enough knowledge, you yourself can actually attain kind of a spiritual realm yourself. Now, Gnosticism, I think, is one that would probably be worth... I, I don't know a whole lot more about it than what I just told you right now. But I think it would be worth a, a, probably a sermon series in and of itself because you know, Gnosticism 
we don't we don't hear much about this docetic stuff anymore. Like, oh, Jesus just seemed to be on earth. But really, the, the idea of the Gnostic duality of everything on earth is evil and everything on, in heaven is perfect has really worked its way into the church more than what we know, what we think about, right? We, how many times do we start finding in our own language about, oh, we're, on, we're just on this fallen earth and planet and everything is horrible and everything's broken. Even talk about, oh, I'm, my, I, me, myself, I'm a bad person, I'm, I'm horrible. We kind of get into that language ourselves, which comes into this, this duality that, well, one day when we get to heaven, everything will be okay, but here on earth, everything's bad. So there's, there's like a little bit of truth to that. But that's not the way Jesus talked about heaven. That's not the way Jesus talked about our flesh. You know, we were created in God's image. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. It's among you. And so that the, the, the Gnostic heresy is a heresy. And sometimes its language still influences us today. It'd be worth looking more into. But that's important to know about the Docetic heresy and the Gnostic heresy. It's important to know because this letter, 1 John, was written to a group of people that had just experienced a church split. There was a, a big schism in the church, and the people that were struggling with the Docetism and the Gnosticism had left the church community. They said, we're, we're, not, we're not a part of you guys anymore. We, we, can't, we can't believe in, the, in this message that you had first proclaimed, and we're leaving. And so this letter is written to this remnant of a church, whatever is left. We don't know if the church was 100 people and 90 left. We don't know if the church was 1,000 people and 10 left. You know, we, just, we don't know the, the, the percentages or numbers or anything, but we know there's a, a pretty significant split. And so, and we can look that, so if you want to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, we'll look at this further as we get to it. But the quote in that passage says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So again, the author is saying, look, they, there's a group of people that left us. They, they left. Um, and then in chapter 4, verse 1, the author says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So again, that's where we pick up that there's a, you know, a pretty significant split here in the church. Uh, and most scholars' agreement that, that that split was due to uh, the people that left were following the route of the Docetic or the Gnostic heresies. And so this letter was written to that group that was left, that hadn't left, that hadn't followed these heresies, but were still really broken up and struggling and felt the pain of that leaving. And maybe some of them are questioning too, like why? Why did they leave? Why, what's the difference? What is really the right way to, to live and to believe and to act? And so that's where this, this um, parable, or not parable, this letter comes in. So as you read through 1 John, and as we go through 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, it's important for us to keep that in mind. Because at any point in the letter, as you read, you think, why is that in there? Why did John use this language? Why did John in include this teaching? Why? A lot of times that why will make much more sense if you understand of the, the break and the split that has happened in the church, the pain that comes from that and the people that are left that are trying to make sense of, of who they are and what they believe and what they're going to do next. And so as we ask why, that language becomes much more clear. 
So let's go back to those, that introductory text, those first four verses. And let's look at that language. We see that sensory, sensory language of, of feeling, of hearing, of seeing, that John repeats each word multiple times. And he's saying how important it is that we saw Jesus, that we, we touched Jesus, that we heard Jesus. He was here. We were, were, were testifying to you. We're proclaiming to you what we saw and we heard and we touched. Why does John emphasize that language so much? Well, all of a sudden that makes a lot more sense when you understand what these people have gone through. They've gone through a split where people have said, no, Jesus wasn't, he just appeared to be real. He wasn't a real human being. Or people are saying, no, he was just a good teacher. He wasn't really God. And John is writing to affirm to people, no, like we have seen God in the flesh. We are there. We touched him. We, we ate with him. We, we lived with him. We, we heard him. We saw him. This incarnation thing that Jesus coming to God, coming to us as human but as fully divine at the same time is real. And this was a, a, is, continues to be a stumbling block for, all, for, this, for us today, right? Maybe not for everyone in this room, but around the world. Nobody denies that Jesus was a good teacher or a prophet uh, or even that he died. But people will deny that he was actually divine. And so that's, what, that's why John is using this language to emphasize no, this is real. We were, we were there. We proclaimed to you the truth that we saw. And that this incarnation, that Jesus came to us as God, that is the gospel. That if you take away the fact that Jesus was God, you take away the message. You take away everything that we gave to you. You can't have Christianity without the incarnation. You can't have the gospel message. You don't, you don't have good news if Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And that's where he gets to that fellowship language. You know, if we don't have the incarnation, we don't have the message, and then we have nothing that we're fellowshipping with. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no God that we're fellowshipping with if there's no incarnation. And he's saying it's through the incarnation that we have fellowship with God. And so, he's, again, we ask, why did John talk about fellowship so much? It's because that happens through the incarnation. It's through Jesus coming to us that we're able to have fellowship with God. And how important that is and that emphasis comes through over and over again. So we see in this introduction that John is pointing to the heresies and saying those, those are wrong ways of thinking. And new people that are left, you guys are staying together in fellowship. He's trying to encourage them and give them that, that understanding of who they are and how to stay strong to that belief. So that's all uh, a lot of historical stuff. And it's important for us to understand as we look through the text. But what about for us today? What are some of the takeaways uh, that we can apply to our lives right here? Now, I, I don't know if any of you have been through a church split. I know it's an incredibly painful thing. Uh, I've never lived, lived through it. We've all probably felt the pain of people leaving us, right? That, that we're part of Crown Hill and have chosen to go somewhere else. And that's, that's a very difficult and painful thing to do. I mean, that leaves you wondering, why did that happen? Or what was the difference? And, you know, why did they choose that church instead of ours? So we, we know the pain of that. And, and so you can imagine that pain, you know, kind of multiplied by a whole church breaking in half. It's a very painful thing. Uh, so we can, we can gain some confidence from, from reading through that. Uh, but it's, it's still, we don't want to put ourselves in, that, in that, that context necessarily. We don't want to, we haven't, Crown Hill hasn't been through a split like that, so we don't want to put ourselves and say, oh, we're just like that church. But it, there's a little bit of a, a, sim, a similarity there that we can maybe learn from. 
But I think the, the big thing here, and this is what John was emphasizing over and over again, was the incarnation. The incarnation, and that, I mean, that's a word that you don't really hear very often, but that is God taking on flesh. And we hear about that at Christmas. It's something we celebrate because that's when it, when it started, when Jesus was a baby. And so we've all probably seen the nativity and the Christmas story, and it makes us feel good. But do we ever really take the time to comprehend the magnitude of that, besides kind of the, the warm fuzzies that Christmas gives us, of a, of a baby in a manger and singing, singing carols? That God took on flesh. God that, that is infinite, that is immortal, that was before and will be after, took on flesh. That God lowered himself and became a servant. Like can we, can you, have you really took time to think about what that means for us? That a, a God chose to do that of his own will, to lower himself. And I think what that means for us is like, so we can't do that. I mean, that's not something like, well, I'm going to take on the flesh of something lower than me and, and learn, you know, be a blessing to the, you know, okay, we're not gods, we can't do that. So that's not the takeaway, obviously. But what, what, how can we follow that example? How can we live incarnationally? Not meaning we can't change ourselves into something else, but how can we live incarnationally? I like uh, Eugene Peterson who wrote the message, and I know a number of you use the message when you read Scripture. The way he talks about the incarnation, he says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I kind of like that idea. It's like Jesus moving into the neighborhood. That's something that we can model a little bit more. How do we move into our neighborhood as the good news? You know, we, we can't change our very being, but we can live incarnationally. How can we be Jesus to other people? How can we be the good news that people may have never heard otherwise? How can we be that, have that mentality of moving into the neighborhood, of not expecting people to, to come to us, where we're just going to open these doors on a Sunday morning and expect people to come to us and we'll give them the good news? Because that's not what God did. Right? If we're following Jesus, we're supposed to follow Jesus' example. He didn't just park himself and say, let the people come to me. He went to them. He always got accused because he was eating and drinking with sinners. That means he went into their houses and he lived with them and he ate with them and he drank with them and, and he was God. So how can we follow that example? Who can we go to? Who are the people that, that Caitlin talked about in, in, in the intro that, that need that community, that need fellowship, that need relationship, that need a deeper connection that we'll never find it if we just stay here at, at Crown Hill and just wait. And we say, if you need a deeper connection, here's where you'll find it. Just show up. I agree that if people would come and be a part of us, they will find that deep connection. I, it's true. There's a, you, you, get, we, you, we are a good group of people. And, and good, at, at reaching, you know, good at befriending people. And people that come through these doors always feel welcome. I, that's great. But the problem is, just opening our doors isn't enough. And just opening our doors isn't following the example that Jesus gave to us. So how can we move into the neighborhood and be God's hands and feet, to be incarnational, to, to take the community that we have and go out with it and bring it to people and not wait for people to come to us? God lowered himself. He set aside that which was defined, his immortality, and he took on human flesh and became a servant to all of us. Can we follow that example 
and move into the neighborhood and become servants and be a community to those that need it. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your message that you had for the people that were struggling with the church schism 2,000 years ago. And Lord, as we walk through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I pray that you would continue to illuminate uh, that word for us, that we can understand the context that it was originally written to, so we can understand it for our lives today. Lord, I pray for those, um, not just in this room, but around the world and around our community that have been through church splits, who know the pain and the difficulty and the long-lasting scarring that happens for that. And so, Lord, for those that, that have been through that, we pray for healing and recovery. And Lord, for, for us personally, and I know many have had friends that have, have left Crown Hill for various reasons and that pain doesn't go away quickly, I pray for, for healing and recovery there. And Lord, for, for us as we seek to follow your example, that you modeled for us what it's like to, to set aside rights and privileges, to lower ourselves, to be a friend of all, to, to extend our, our willingness to relate and be a community to anyone. So Lord, give us those examples where we can, in a way, move into the neighborhoods that we're already living in, but maybe not a physical move, but a philosophical move where we become more available to people that are around us. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, please give us the ability and the desire to do, uh, to live incarnationally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
As you go this week, have your eyes and your ears open to ways that you can live incarnationally in your neighborhood. Go in peace. Amen.